0: If you did not get emails, please take that piece of paper that's in your bulletin and write yeah, that one there, Son's holding up, and write your email address on it. The first email came from Pastor John and it talked about our annual meeting coming up here on the 25th and everybody's invited to attend, just stay after the morning worship service, that's in a couple weeks. And In that email, he said that we have uh, three new elders to present to you Um, Fred Dial, where are you, Fred? Oh, (laughs) okay. Um, And Jeremy Fisher, and myself will be. on the slate, as well as dual, uh, back up again for the 40th year, uh, is an example of staying faithful to the Lord after all these years. Jeremy's going to read our scripture for us this morning. Jeremy.
1: Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord, for the glory of God the Father. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. Since we're going to be voting on um, elders in a couple weeks, I thought this might be a good time as we're going through this series on understanding the church to look at the topic of understanding spiritual leadership. Good time to talk about what church leaders are supposed to be. Now, most sermons on this topic either go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or or Titus chapter 1. And in those two passages, there's a list of things that that spiritual leaders are to do or not to do. I don't believe it's an all-inclusive list. I think he's just showing out some examples uh, of what uh, leaders are supposed to look like. And I'm sure you've heard those sermons before. So what I wanna do today is I wanna go a little bit deeper. Instead of talking about their actions, I wanna talk about their attitudes. And I I want to look at their attitudes in light of our current culture today. Several observations have been made by people concerning our culture today. Um, One is in today's culture, everything is politicized, okay? Everything has been given a political context to it. There are no neutral topics. There are no neutral people. Uh, Everything and everybody is interpreted in light of a political perspective. So whether we want it or not, whether we mean it or not, we have to live with that in our culture today. Another thing that has been noted about our, our culture is that we live in what is called a cancel culture. Are you familiar with that term, cancel culture? Basically, it comes like this. I can preach a hundred sermons that you love, but preach one sermon that you don't like, and it's out the door. Okay? Uh That is very prevalent. Um, We see it in the uh, secular world uh, where a very popular movie star uh, who could ask millions of dollars for doing any movie walks up on stage and slaps a comedian who he feels insulted his wife and now there's a 10-year ban on his appearance. Another thing that has been noted about our culture today has, has been de- termed as culture war Christianity. Now, culture war Christianity has been around for my lifetime, anyhow. Uh, what it means is this. The church feels the need to be attacking something or someone. It's cultural wars. Now, when I was young, the church I attended was constantly attacking liberalism. The liberal churches, they were the enemy. In my teen years, that focus changed to the neo-evangelical movement, and everyone was attacking the neo-evangelical churches. And and that included attacking Billy Graham, who was associated with that. Then the focus changed again. And the church was attacking Pentecostals. Okay. There's no end to what Christians are willing to attack, it seems like. As a result, the church has become a pawn of people who have their own agenda. And that's sad. But and I'm not talking about con- just conservative churches, that's liberal churches, conservative churches, and everybody in the middle. One thing that all of these three observations have in common is an obsession with winning. Okay? An obsession with winning. Winning is the American way, right? People live in fear of losing. In the last couple days, I've seen a couple political advertisements on television. Okay. And, you know, the elections are still a bit off. But they're, and, and I call this the fear season. Okay. Because they're all peddling fear. You know, if you don't elect me, oh, Armageddon you know, going to break out on the world. Uh, In fact, we have a term uh, that's kind of close to that. It's called FOMO. Are you you familiar with FOMO? Stands for fear of missing out. Okay? We don't elect somebody, you know, we're going to miss out on all the good things. And and so, you know, FOMO. Uh, A common phrase that you hear is the phrase, we are in it to win it. To tag on the last week's sermon, we can't love people when we're fixated on beating them and winning. So, I'm going to put on my Captain Obvious hat again this morning as we talk about what spiritual leadership is supposed to be. And we'll begin with this point. Leaders lead. Okay? Okay. Leaders lead. Christ Jesus is the example of the perfect leader. So I want to go back to that text that that Jeremy uh, just read a moment ago. Let me read it again for you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now, here's some things we need to know. One, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Okay. But we're talking about his earthly ministry. During the earthly ministry, Jesus was God. He is equal with God. But he did not use his equality with the Father to his own advantage. Jesus did not play to win. If I can use that metaphor of, of a game and playing. Jesus didn't play to to win in human terms of winning. In fact, we could say Jesus played to lose. You see, he's playing a completely different game by by different rules. And Jesus gave up the right to win so that we could win, so that we could have eternal life. It says there in verse seven, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus was willing to become a nobody. Okay? A nobody. He became a rug for people to wipe their filthy feet on. The cross is the biggest rug there ever was. He took on the nature of a servant. His attitude was, how can I serve people, not what's in it for me, or what can I get out of it for myself? Now remember, a few sermons back, we are the body of Christ on earth today. So his attitude when he was on earth needs to be our attitude while we are on earth. And I believe the church never looks more like Christ than when we're looking out for others rather than demanding our own rights. The church looks more like Christ when we're giving away rather than demanding our way. Now, If that makes us fearful of losing, then I think we can understand the disciples who could not comprehend the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. I think as we look at the disciples in those last days of Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross, we see that they were afraid of losing. I wanna go over to Mark chapter nine. We're going to spend a little time in Luke, and then we're going to go to Mark. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, says, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him on the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked, by the way, I want you to remember that word rebuked. Okay? Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healing the healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it And they were afraid to ask him about it. This is the second time now that in the chronology that Jesus has predicted his death. And it says the disciples were afraid to ask him about it. You see, they couldn't understand how do you win through losing? In the same chapter of Luke, we get a little bit more insight into their concept of winning over and a little bit later on in Luke nine, beginning in verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, picture this in your mind. Jesus and his disciples are going from Galilee up north. They're headed to Jerusalem down south, but they have to go through Samaria. And Jesus sends a couple of his disciples, a couple scouts to go ahead of him to check out uh, the places where they could lodge for the night because they're going to have to stay overnight there, several days journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Well, when the Samaritans found out that they were Jews headed on down to Jerusalem, nobody would give them lodging. Wouldn't give them a place to stay for the night. So those, spot, those scouts, we'll call them, came back to Jesus. And uh, they came back to report, you know, there, we have no place to stay, Okay. Here's where we see the disciples' view of what it looks like to win. James and John, they ask, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They were going for the ultimate win. Kill off the enemy. Okay? Kill off the opposition. Total power is what they are after. Total control over their enemies. It says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Remember the word rebuke that I just gave a little bit earlier, where he rebuked demons? Same word is here. He rebuked his disciples. It is a very strong word. Jesus is telling them, and through the word of God's telling us, that's not how he works. He doesn't work through control and power and victory. That's the world's way. That's not God's way. Over in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, we have another example of the disciples' faulty way of thinking. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will arise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because, in the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So, Jesus is talking with his disciples about his death and resurrection. This is incomprehensible to the disciples. I mean, how can he win if he lets them kill him? And in turn, how can they win? Because they hook their, their, on the coattails of Jesus. So rather than think about that, their thoughts turn to who can be the greatest? See, their idea of winning is to be in a position where they can take control, they can take power. And and which one of them is going to have the second greatest position of control and power when Jesus takes over? In their minds, they reject the crucifixion Because if he's arrested and killed, how are we going to win? You know, Jesus must have had the patience of Job. Probably a lot more. You see, winning, according to Jesus, is becoming the servant of all. Winning is coming in last. Winning is a struggle, a scramble to the bottom, not to the top. We don't climb the ladder of success. We descend the ladder of success. In Mark chapter 10, we have another one. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. I love that. Open question, okay? My kids tried that, I think. Dad, will you you, you give me something? My answer was, well, what is it you want? That was Jesus' answer. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, sitting at the left and the right of the king were the number two and the number three position. They aren't interested in serving. They want to be in positions of power. They want to win, according to the world's concept of winning, not God's. And Jesus tells them he's gonna win by losing. We're going to lose man's game so we can win God's game. Again, using that metaphor. When Jesus died on the cross, he showed us how to serve. It is by serving God that we win. What did Jesus do afterwards? He washed his disciples' feet. Again, an example of being a servant. Jesus prayed on the cross that the Father would forgive the very men who put him on the cross. Jesus forgave one thief hanging next to him and gave him eternal life. I believe, and this is my personal opinion, you might disagree with me, but I believe for the most part, the church has forgotten how to win God's way. The early church understood it. Do you know what the early Christians did when the Christians were being rounded up to be thrown to the lions? They didn't hide. They didn't deny they were Christians. They stood up and said, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. They let the Roman government, as evil and corrupt as it was, play right into the hand of God by losing their lives. That's a foreign concept for many Christians today. Do you know what happened to the church during this period of time? Christianity grew faster than any other time in church history. By losing their lives, God's church won. Wow. Jesus said, Take up your cross and follow me. What did he mean by that? Well, for Christ, The cross meant losing in human terms, winning in God's terms. And when he says, take up your cross and follow me, I believe what he was saying is, be willing to lose. Don't be afraid to lose. When you lose, God wins. Now, if you study church history again, there came a time when the church lost that concept. During that time, the church became a tool of power-hungry demagogues who desired to conquer and dominate people. During this period of time, the church became the church at its worst. It was the time of the Dark Ages. It was the time of the Crusades evil, power-hungry men, led the church away from the teachings of Jesus. And the church became a pawn of those seeking power. The church lost its distinctiveness. It was no longer about the gospel. It was about greed and power. And you know, still today, There are politicians who have never darkened the door of a church seek to make the church a pawn in their grab for power. When the church is sucked in by those seeking power, it is no longer the church. It's just another organization with a self-seeking purpose. I want to go back to the, the passage we started with in Philippians Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Okay, note the word mindset. Okay, that's important. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. If anybody could have played the God card, it was Jesus, okay? All that power of being God He set aside. He set all the power. Winning was set aside. He did not use it for his own advantage. He said the highest becomes the lowest. He did not demand his rights, although he had every right to demand his rights because he was God he was not thinking about what would be best for him, but rather what would be best for a sin-cursed world. Now, how does this apply to church leaders? Well, church leaders do not make decisions based on what is best for them. Okay, It's not a position of power, but rather of servanthood. Church leaders are servants. Therefore, church leaders need to know how to serve. That would be my number one prerequisite. Secondly, church leaders do not make decisions based on what is best for the church. Now, I bet that surprised some of you. What do you mean? What is best for a local assembly might not be what's best for the gospel. If the early church had done what was best for the church, they would have told Christians, go and hide. Okay. But they didn't. I mean, think about it. How's the church going to grow if your people keep volunteering to get killed? What was best for the gospel was not best for the church. The universal church grows faster in times of opposition when they don't fight back. When the church is willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus and being willing to lose so the gospel can win, that is what the church is all about. Just like in Star Trek, we have a prime directive. And the prime directive is not to grow the church. The prime directive is to win the loss to Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of the phrase church politics? Those two words should never be used together. Let me show you a little contrast here. Christianity, the goal is to lose so God can win. Politics, the goal is to win at all costs. Christianity, the purpose is to become a servant. Politics, the purpose is to gain power. Christianity, the result is losing control. Politics, the result is gaining control. Now, am I saying that Christians shouldn't vote or be involved in politics? No. I believe that Christians need to be the moral compass of the nation. But we do it differently than the world. Okay? We do it lovingly. We do it gently in a way that the world does not see us just as another special interest group out there. We do it while keeping in mind that our prime directive is to lead people to Christ, not drive them further away from Christ. Now, next week's message is going to be, how do we deal with the church's enemies? Okay, that's something else. We're going to need to know. But my sermon today is first directed to the four of us men who may become elders for the next year. What is our attitude towards the church? What is our attitude towards leadership? But my sermon is also for the rest of you. Some board decisions might not be in your best interest. Okay? Some board decisions might not be in the church's best interest. The board serves, not the church. The board serves the Lord. By the way, one more time, whose church is it? God's church. The board serves God. Now please, don't become a part of the cancel culture. Just because the board makes a decision you don't like. Pray for the board. That they will be following the teaching of Jesus, not the accepted world's philosophy on how to win. Okay, let's pray. Lord, the message this morning is probably one of the sermons that's the furthest away from a Western mindset because we're so fixated on winning, on dominating, crushing the opponent. It finds its way into our sports, finds its way into our politics, It finds its way into our culture in many different ways. But Father, you've called us to be different. And Father, we are to be in the world, but not of the world so we can be involved in everything that's going on, but we do it your way, not the world's way. Father, help the world to see our love for them through our gentleness, through our kindness. Help them to see that we're not fixated on winning. And Lord, most of all, Lord, may they see your love in and through us in absolutely everything we do and say. For I pray in Christ Jesus' name, amen.